Hello everybody! So, uh, thank you for tuning in. Today we're going to talk about the purple peel. Essentially, what happens if you take both the red and the blue peel at the same time uh, when Morpheus uh, offers them to you? <laughs> uh, which, you know, it's kind of like a metaphor for the idea of is it possible to, you know, have information and knowledge about quote-unquote the truth without also becoming, you know, a nervous mess, you know, kind of a, a, a neurotic wreck just uh, as a consequence. In other words, the purple peel is kind of the claim that it is actually possible to have representational accuracy about what's going on in the world and how to improve it without at the same time falling into the, you know, the, the, the peat of a, of a deep depression or something like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think red or blue peel, it's a false dichotomy. Alright, so we'll talk about that in a second, but before, the quality of the day is spiritual materialism. So there's this pretty cool book, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name honestly, but you know, the way to, I, my attempt would be Chongyam Trungpa? Um, anyway, uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, who came to the US in the 70s and had a pretty interesting school. Um, and uh, this book is really great. I mean, honestly, is one of the few resources that actually talks about this concept without sugarcoating it and <laughs> actually just, you know, telling you straight up what's going on. <laughs> um, that said, you know, an important caveat um, is that, you know, even though I value this resource a lot, uh, like him as a teacher, um, well, I'm not very convinced, actually, that his teaching methods were, you know, actually adequate. He was... Um, an alcoholic, and also he had a very heavy cocaine addiction. Um, you know, he would start out start out the day, according to a bunch of, you know, witnesses, you know, just drinking a tall glass of gin, um, and then throughout the day just continue drinking nonstop. And whenever he would give lectures, apparently he would basically snort a bunch of cocaine, so that <laughs> even though he was totally blasted, you know, he was able to still deliver something coherent. And uh, admittedly, those lectures, you can find them on YouTube, they're quite fascinating, and you can kind of tell the guy is probably, you know, kind of, kind of like blasted, but, you know, he, he makes sense. Um, uh, there's also like a lot of like allegations of, uh, you know, like pretty, pretty unpleasant things that he did to his, uh, to his students. And like, anyway, it's a rabbit hole. Um, I don't want to, you just, just, you know, character assassination or anything of the sort. You know, you, you see the good in people, even though, you know, maybe they do bad things. Um, and uh, yeah, this book is wonderful. So the concept of spiritual materialism is this idea that to a large extent, a lot of what motivates our spiritual pursuits is actually the decoration of our ego. That yes, sometimes we can access these beautiful, you know, states of loving kindness, for example, you know, compassion towards all sentient beings and, and things of that nature. Um, but there is this normal, you know, typical human tendency that, you know, when we actually come down, we lose touch with that actual kind of like selfless feeling, you could say, that we incorporate it into our personality and, in a sense, you know, embody it as a, as a social persona. And, uh, and we think of ourselves as, you know, better <laughs> than others for that reason. Now, there can be some, you know, sense in which objectively, yes, okay, like accessing, you know, very refined states of consciousness is, you know, very healthy, is very good for you, makes you a kinder person. 
perfect. All of that is wonderful. But when it becomes kind of like a, a tool for, you know, in a sense, like, uh, you could say like social domination of some sort. I, I don't know how to explain it cleanly, but uh, um, yeah, basically it's actually kind of like self-contradicting, you know, like the, the very spirit of the states <laughs> go against the way in which they're used in a social setting. And, you know, uh, this is something that it's very ubiquitous, you know, like it is kind of like for a lot of people, it's even kind of like outside their overturned window, this idea that, that you know, they would be like cultivating, you know, these states of consciousness or, or kind of like the, the morality that comes with basically going through a spiritual path um, without somehow using them for kind of a, playing a social role. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Like if you go to a lot of like meditation circles, new age circles, spiritual communities and psychedelic communities, oftentimes the main vibe of the social interactions is actually spiritual materialism. There's kind of this one-upmanship of like, you know, I achieved, you know, the 17th level hyperteroidal wonderland, uh, a phrase that <laughs> I heard from somebody in a, uh, in a group I'm part of. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a weird, bizarre kind of, uh, you know, like one-upmanship competition where like the entire point of these things is to actually, in a sense, get rid of the illusions that the ego naturally cause. Anyway, uh, so this book has a lot of like fascinating kind of uh, Q&As about that phenomena. Um, and in particular, I found it really extraordinary how formless states of consciousness, basically the, the formless jhanas, the you know, upper levels of relaxed concentration, which are nominally egoless in a sense, you know, they don't have like the representation of your body or your personality, but they still have in some sense implicitly a self-other quality to them, even though it's like very, very, very subtle. And, you know, Trungpa will argue that in some sense, if you end your spiritual path in just these like formless states of consciousness, that's kind of like the ultimate ego boost. You know, it's kind of you've transformed your world into something that ego has complete access to. And it's kind of the biggest ego in a, in a sense, um, which, yeah, maybe, maybe there's some element of that. And, you know, of course, like Buddhists will say what distinguishes them from like, you know, Hinduism or like other, 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 other traditions is that they don't stop at the Janic levels of consciousness. They actually aim towards no self. They aim towards like the insight into emptiness and things like that. Uh, now, I don't, you know, examine that from the point of view of morality exactly uh, within, you know, a qualia formalist and valence structuralist account of these states of consciousness. Yes, even, you know, the transformation from basically these like formless Janus states to a actual no-self state, it is a change to the geometric, you know, configurations of the state of consciousness. And so it's not that something utterly transcendental is happening. I do think it's ultimately something that comes down to physics, you know, the physics of consciousness. But um, it is really profound. And in a sense, like that final step is something that apparently, given people we interviewed and, you know, a bunch of books uh, <laughs> I've read, um, yeah, actually makes a big difference. Uh, really, really makes a big difference. And there's a lot of people who, who will claim to be enlightened that are actually just accessing this formless Janus and haven't done that final transition. That one is actually pretty, pretty rare. Uh, and yeah, in a way, like, Chunkpa, Trungpa would say, be, be careful with uh, just thinking that the formless Janus are the 
end-all be-all of spirituality because they're not. They're a stepping stone. That said, they are presumably pretty good for your nervous system. So, I mean, I think like as a kind of an integrated approach to improve our state of mind sustainably, I think like, yeah, probably Jana, Jana's states of consciousness are an important piece of the puzzle. Okay, so on the whole, yes, spiritual materialism is kind of this desire to decorate ourself as kind of like I have been asked, you know, I have been given access to the heaven realms or something like that. And that makes me a special person, whether it's psychedelics or meditation or, or spontaneously. And, uh, and that, that uh, it's kind of uh, unfortunate because it defeats the whole purpose of this activity, um, which takes me to, yeah, basically analyzing uh, what happens when, in a sense, you do uh, try to, you could say, swallow the red pill uh, to like truly understand reality you know in, in this view you know spiritual materialism is kind of like pretending that you're swallowing the red pill whereas actually in the last moment you just like do a you know u-turn and say like no actually conforting illusions is ultimately what i want you know reinforcing my my ego and my my personality um and uh and just kind of like that being the the, the ultimate instead now I, I, I do want to say, and this is like a recurring theme, personally, I, I don't think that, you know, this approach of uh, let's eliminate the ego uh, and achieve no self as like the solution to, you know, the problem of suffering, the solution to how to create, you know, heaven on earth. I think it's a piece of the puzzle too, <laughs> but it's not the end. Uh, why? Because it doesn't grant you access to, you know, understanding quantum mechanics, not automatically. I mean, maybe it can help in some extent, but it is, it's not enough. It doesn't grant you access to like information about like pragmatic methods to get rid of intense suffering or pragmatic methods to understand consciousness scientifically. You know, you need to do those like in parallel or perhaps like, you know, in a synergistic way with the path. But like just, you know, realizing emptiness is not enough. And uh, <laughs> and paradoxically, you know, I might go one step further than uh, Changpa and say, yes, even no self uh, is a type of a uh, blue pill. Uh, if you catch my drift, because kind of like relying on this notion that like, well, everything is perfect already, you know, there's uh, kind of a nothing to optimize for anymore because, you know, uni the universe already like knows itself through me or, you know, there's a lot of like stories of that sort that happens when people realize emptiness. And yes, I mean, I think that's a, a type of blue pill, maybe a very refined, very advanced, but it is still a blue pill. One of the crazy things about the blue pill is that when you take it, it makes you believe that actually what you do was the red pill. So the illusion is is double. Uh, it's not only that <laughs> you chose illusion, it's that by choosing illusion, you think that you didn't choose illusion. And in, in many of these circumstances, I would say that's uh, kind of what's happening. Okay, so let's say you do take the red pill. Um, let's say you did, you know, actually, you know, you were brave and bold and uh, in the previous video, you didn't, you know, close the tab. You actually went uh, and, and watched uh, what I had to say after taking the red pill, um, which is, yeah, I mean, not only that you don't have access to, you know, the external world in a direct way that you live in a world simulation, but also that actually, you know, a lot of the things that we do in an everyday basis is to kind of create experience machines for each other, kind of like this, uh, in a sense, like simulations of of. Uh, uh, of systems, of social systems, where like meaning can be derived. And in that sense, um, 
yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that we do actually rely on the manufacturing of social illusions for the purpose of motivating each other to do things. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you do take the red pill, so to speak, uh, you kind of like see through that and you understand that, well, actually, you know, at the base of it all, you know, we're actually optimizing for valence, whether we realize it or not, for the most part, we actually deceive ourselves into thinking that that's not the case. But if you examine our psychology very carefully, you see that, yeah, actually, that's <laughs> all we ever do. Um, so, okay. But the thing is, the typical human response to kind of like learning about the existence of the heaven realms and the hell realms, again, not as like places outside of you, but as possible states of consciousness, is A, uh, if you kind of like focus too much on the hell realms, uh, you tend to become... Um, you know, negative utilitarian or anti-natalist, basically kind of reframing your world as, hey, uh, this is the most important thing. We should absolutely stop this. Uh, perhaps even going as far as to say that if there was a button, that if you pressed it, you know, reality would be destroyed um, or it's almost as if it had never existed. You know, yeah, negative utilitarians would say that our moral obligation is to do that. And uh, in practice, though, I mean, in these communities, and I've got to say, I mean, I have a lot of moral, you know, intellectual respect for negative utilitarians because they do take the red pill in many, many ways. And uh, it's kind of admirable to actually do that. Um, we really need like truth seekers in this world. But uh, yeah, I mean, one of the side effects of that particular red pill is that um, socially what happens is that in a sense, a lot of the status that is derived in those communities has to do with basically how strongly you signal your trauma uh, about like reality, uh, which is such a messed up kind of like status, you know, uh, algorithm, <laughs> if you ask me. Uh, yeah, so basically it's kind of like the end result of, you know, that culture ends up being that, yeah, basically you, you end up curling in a ball, um, crying your way into like a nightmarish world. Um, and it's extremely depressing. And for the most part, you will constantly experience frustration as people around you choose again and again comfortable illusions rather than listening to you. So yeah, I mean, basically, I don't think it's necessarily a recipe socially or intellectually for actually contributing to the reduction of suffering and the creation of positive heaven worlds. Now, the flip side too is like, actually, you know, one of the things that happens in this philosophy, you know, taking the red pill is that, yeah, you actually learn that ultra blissful states of consciousness are also real, you know, and in a sense that also should actually dramatically update how you think of what even the, what, what the universe is, like, what is this whole thing? Because, uh, you know, it's almost kind of a, yeah, you know, like, if all your life, you know, you're li living right next to Disneyland, but you don't know it, you know, <laughs> you're like in Orlando or so, I don't know, somewhere like that. And like you think that the world is just your house and maybe the store right next to you. And you, you know, you've never learned the fact that there's like Disneyland right next to you. <laughs> it seems like you're missing out something really essential about like what the nature of the place in which you live is. And yes, I mean, like once you know that heaven realms exist as a states of consciousness, yeah, that really ought to transform your understanding of what the universe even is. And in practice, it, it, it can happen. But again, obsessing about it too much also has a lot of unfortunate side effects, you know, from mania to grandiosity to believing in things such as like 
if only we can all synchronize our biorhythms, we will all enter a wonderful, coherent state throughout the world. And a lot of things like that, which, I mean, frankly, they're kind of dissociated from like a fine, you know, level understanding of the causal structure of the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, understanding that these like super high valence experiences exist is part of, you know, taking the red pill, so to speak. The simulation is red pill. At the same time, it also tends to cause a lot of illusions as a side effect. So, again, it's one of those disguised blue pills, uh, if you will. Um, so, where does this leave us? So, there is this wonderful article by Zvi, uh, there's a, a link in the description, uh, called More Daka, where basically uh, he talks about how, uh, you know, a super common thing uh, in, in medicine and science is that, you know, somebody tries to do something, for example, stem cell, you know, therapy or something like that. There's like negative results. In other words, like the therapy doesn't actually improve clinical outcomes. And what happens is that everybody in the field realizes like, oh, that therapy doesn't work. And if somebody tries to do the experiment again, oftentimes like it's not funded, you know, you can't get enough traction to fund it because people will say that was tried. It didn't work. But guess what? In many of these situations, when you try it again, with a higher dose, <laughs> all of a sudden it actually works. And, you know, the, the, there's lots of examples from like the intensity of light for, for example, combating seasonally affective depression disorder and also uh, things such as basically uh, chemotherapy. That like a lot of like chemotherapy drugs basically only work if you take them in high doses to get rid of cancer. Um, and if you don't, it's almost as if you hadn't taken them. Why? Because things like cancer basically have these really, really, they have like kind of like two attractors. They have like one where the conditions in your body are such that the reproductive rate of the cancer cells is less than one, in which case it converges towards zero. <laughs> and if you don't manage to do that, if the reproductive rate is like above one, even if it's like very little, like only barely slightly above one, then it converges towards infinity. It's an exponential growth. So actually, like, the difference between, like, you know, 20 and 25 milligrams of, like, a particular, you know, chemotherapy drug can actually be the difference between becoming well or dying of cancer. And, you know, this, this happens all over the place. And, but one, and one of the, the, the things I really appreciate about that essay is this idea that because people don't try stuff, they actually don't for the, you know, even if you give them as is like, yeah, you know, take cold showers or like, you know, actually, you know, meditate every day or, you know, <laughs> do, do exercise uh, or even things such as like, you know, try this particular nootropic or, you know, read this textbook. If you want to understand this technical field, um, people will say something like, well, you know, I tried it, you know, I read a couple pages. It's, I still don't get it, you know, or something like that. Like more DACA, try more, try harder, go the extra mile and then tell us if it works or not. Or, you know, don't try to simulate that you tried it. Don't try to think that you tried it. Actually do it, you know, do it and then report back. And what you will find over and over again is that actually people who achieve extraordinary things, very often it is because they applied an ordinary amount of effort into doing them relative to no effort <laughs> or, or something kind of like, you know, half, of an effort yeah basically ordinary effort is where it's at actually for the most part <laughs> when it comes to yeah like having like very big impacts or you know 
developing interventions that really work. And uh, I can give you an example, like of all of the talk, you know, all of the virtue signaling there is out there in the world, um, like what is it accomplishing? You know, you have a lot of people who are like very proud of like, you know, their donations to their sal to the Salvation Army or to this cause or this, you know, like this particular charity or political or, you know, like, you know, going volunteering as a teacher or something like that. And like, for the most part, I would regard those as kind of like nice things to do, but psychologically they oftentimes can just be kind of understood from the lens of spiritual materialism it's kind of like people want kind of these badges of altruism that they can they can display to others and be in good social standing with each other you know again it's, it's all like egoic play in, in that sense versus for example somebody like uh, Harlan Stewart or uh, Quentin Ferrix for from QRI who you know like spent uh well in the case of Harlan Stewart just like literally just making a survey about uh, you know, frequency of cluster headaches and whether they have used people with that disorder have used psychedelics for the purpose of relieving them and why they're not use, uh, using them in, in, in case they don't. Um, and in the case of Quentin Freyrex, you know, actually kind of like laying down what the cost-benefit analysis of something like, you know, DMT for cluster headaches. So that's like something for which you need a kind of an ordinary amount of effort. You know, these are not like like, oh, and then I had to run a, you know, a, an Ironman or something like that, or like a, you know, triple marathon, super ultra difficult. It's like, no, <laughs> you just like spent, you know, maybe the same amount of hours that you would have spent at a random, you know, university course. And then all of a sudden you generated this information that is groundbreaking and like, you know, nobody had checked. Again, more DACA. Nobody had gone the extra mile to do these like very, you know, ordinary effort, you know, nice thing for the world. And yes, nowadays, I mean, thanks to, to that work um, and uh, the Organization for the Prevention of Intense Suffering, I mean, again, like I, I, I praise people like uh, Jonathan Lighton and uh, Manu Heran and David Pierce for, for that type of work where, um, again, nothing extraordinary except for the you know, strategic mindset and also for actually having really good taste on what to choose to focus on, which in this case is simple, you could even say stupid in retrospect, uh, interventions in order to get rid of intense suffering, in order to destroy hell one piece at a time. And yeah, you don't need to be extraordinary to do this. You, you just need to be pointed in the right direction and be yeah, kind of like bold and yeah, for sure, like having some psychological robustness. So that again, awareness of this information doesn't make you curl into a ball and be depressed all the time, which is not what we want at all. <laughs> That's not the purpose of it. Do not do that. <laughs> and if you do, it's not impressing anybody. You know, it's just sad. That's that's all it is. We, we might want to give you a hug, but it's you don't get brownie points for getting super depressed about these things. <laughs> at least I don't think that's beneficial. Um, so... Yeah, again, ordinary amount of effort can do extraordinary things. And my guess is like, if you were to map out, yeah, basically the, the benefit of different things that people do, sometimes, yeah, like extraordinary amount of efforts, volunteering, you know, like 40 hours a week and, you know, the local, you know, homeless kitchen and all that, like, sure, good. Amount of like suffering it reduced, yeah, probably like, like over here, you know, uh, 
like maybe donating to like against malaria foundation like you know you're transforming the effort from your work into you know something effective like that like yeah actually pretty substantial you know doing research on uh you know new you know therapy and nanotechnology to get rid of cancer or something like that okay maybe even more especially if you're a you know a good researcher um spending a couple afternoons into you know setting up a survey and analyzing them in order to find cost-effective interventions to prevent intense suffering you know doesn't even register on the charts okay so i think like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit and yeah i mean if you're serious and emotionally stable honestly yeah i i would point you point you at that um but it's not the only thing and actually you know this takes me to the next point which is that this is an optimization problem so I do talk a lot about like, you know, how to get rid of extreme suffering. I think that's like, yeah, a huge like moral imperative. And it's very, 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 very important. Uh, at the same time, you know, I don't spend all day, every day focusing on that uh, because it's just not sustainable. And more so, you know, it's an optimization problem. So consider, for example, the impact that I hope, you know, that my life's work, the work we do at QRI and like, you know, people who are allies and and people who are kind of in this wavelength. Um, okay, like, um, getting rid of intense suffering is really important, uh, but, you know, if you consider the productivity of a person as a function of the hedonic tone, uh, you will see that, in a sense, as soon as you start to have a little bit of pain, a little bit of suffering or depression or anxiety, your productivity, like, basically collapses. It's very difficult to find somebody who's experiencing, you know, you know, six out of 10 pain, you know, every day, all day long, who is like actually, you know, strategic and able to do really effective work to help others. Yeah, it's, it's rare. It's extremely rare. So if you were to graph, in a sense, kind of a productivity as a function of like pain levels, if you start with kind of like productivity of one, like it starts to drop off pretty quickly. So like as soon as you have kind of like you know, two out of 10 or something like that, you're like 10% as productive, uh, just too distracting. Whereas like how morally relevant these like, you know, different kinds of pain are grows exponentially. So you see that if you're actually trying to bring people up to the state of consciousness where they can help you, actually just getting rid of intense suffering may not do it. You know, if you, if you create an intervention against chronic pain, you, sure, you may actually be able to take a bunch of people who are in 10 out of 10 pain, huge, you know, intrinsic, like, moral benefit out of that. But even if you're only able to, you know, if, if you do the massive, you know, help of taking them from 10 out of pain, 10 out of 10 pain to 5 out of 10 pain, they will still not be productive at that level. And even if you get rid of their pain, they'll still be traumatized. Like, it, it, it's still not enough, you know, for them to actually be able to contribute. And here is one possible failure mode and i expect this you know to happen with a lot of like people who actually you know get it they took the red pill about you know suffering and so on is that they will burn out themselves and, and you spend all of the resources of an organization all of their personal resources and so on just focusing on that like extreme negative without understanding that in that way you're not reinvesting on the whole system that led you to basically be able to focus on that so uh, the way in which rather I think about how to distribute resources is I think a very strategic way where basically there's three components. Yes, there is getting rid of intense suffering and yes, we should do that. I mean, we should pay the dues, so to speak, 
and like you know not leave that you know procrastinate on that like too much no for sure not like always do a little bit of work in that direction second improve the baseline of hedonic tone because that is where you you know you're able to take somebody who's like a two out of ten not necessarily pain it could be anxiety or depression or something like that and you take them to let's say like two out of ten happiness and oh boy like that difference causes such a profound change in people's productivity that yes if you want to rope in more people to the task of you know rational paradise engineering actually focusing on that transition um, is really really important it actually makes a, a, a huge difference uh, and the third point is also uh, understanding and uh, recruiting intense bliss uh, we call it reaching new heights why because that causes a lot of existential hope and that's really good i mean that's a fantastic asset it's so motivating i mean in the end when you know that these heaven realms exist not only theoretically but that you've actually had like some glimpses of it and you're not using them to brainwash yourself into some like blue pill perspective all of a sudden that can be profoundly beneficial for like motivation that like even if you're like altruistic intellectually or spiritually we could say actually feeding your animal self with this direct experience basically aligns it with its higher self so to speak and that is so valuable so important now i don't think that <laughs> the solution is to just nearly willy give people mdma and in a sense bring them on to the task of paradise engineering because no, I mean, it actually has to be done in a very careful way that includes, like, yeah, informed consent. And that's, like, very tricky. So that's that's uh, not easy at all. And also that, uh, yeah, basically the temptation of spiritual materialism is really strong. And, like, for the most part, people who experience intense bliss oftentimes, you know, end up uh, kind of uh, the spiritual materialist uh, <laughs> vibe for the rest of their life, unfortunately. Uh, so basically, yeah, this is something that has to be approached with extreme care. But I do think that developing technologies for sustainable, intense bliss are a game changer, even if you're a negative utilitarian, even if, you know, you're an antinatalist. Actually, you should still be supporting these, like, technologies of intense happiness. Again, I do expect them to basically play a very significant role in, basically, the strategic landscape of the future, because, yeah... You could say you attract more flies with honey. I don't know. That's probably not a good picture for, <laughs> for what I have in mind. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, like, yeah. And, and also from the point of view of kind of the marketplace of spirituality and so on, if there is an alternative that actually allows you to experience those states without compromising your sanity or epistemology, I, I do think that's a strong, as a strong play. And uh, I, I would like to basically make that happen. Um, now, also importantly... Uh, this is like a huge failure mode. So we talked about like how the optimization problem does, uh, you know, require this kind of like commitment to the well-being of all consciousness. And I, and I think that's very, very critical. We have, we, we've got to have that as kind of part of the logos. And it's one of the reasons why I do think like things such as open individualism or even empty individualism, but basically things that allow you to see through the evolutionarily adaptive illusions that, you know, create this feeling of, you know, separation between you as a person and the rest of reality, 
or even like something like you and your you know tribe and the rest of reality or something like that they're like it, it is actually really important to you know overcome that illusion however <laughs> it is very easy to abuse that for all sorts of purposes and it's unfortunately the case that in a sense using the excuse of i'm doing this for the greater good can have all sorts of like crazy political effects in groups and uh in society and uh i mean rightly so i think like if somebody says like hey i'm trying to uh you know work towards the greater good you probably it probably makes sense to be you know somewhat skeptical of actually well in what ways are they benefiting personally you know or are they benefiting like something they're really attached to and um, oftentimes you will find that, yes, actually there are these hidden motivations underneath. And uh, A, I don't think we should vilify those hidden motivations. We should understand them and ideally be okay with them, uh, but just plan around them. Uh, but B, um, the kind of like true kind of like benevolent states of consciousness, they do exist. And it's also very important not to always tag Kind of like any kind of altruistic like oh let's benefit all consciousness we're all one like you shouldn't always tag that as like oh that's just you know a political move or that's just you know kind of a a way to to uh you know gain power or something like that because no i mean those states of consciousness exist they're part of reality and they are benevolent <laughs> they're freaking altruistic and that's a part of their nature and the fact that they get co-opted by their ego for spiritual materialism and so on is in some sense kind of besides the point that like let's not just abandon them for that reason alone that like they continue to be ultra valuable however yeah the the second point is that we have to have sane in-group output dynamics so that we don't just just you know if we kind of like make a call to action to volunteer to you know get rid of suffering or something like that we just don't open the gates to anybody who claims to care about it because in practice a lot of them will be you know sociopaths who are actually just trying to gain control of your organization so <laughs> actually you do need very sensibly important filters and this is like something that for example in hippie communes they just suck at so bad you know uh, we can look at like success cases. I mean, I would say for the most part, you know, places like Burning Man, I mean, they don't have like, you know, well-defined altruistic motivations in the way that it is relevant for us. Um, but you do find like relatively little kind of sociopathic takes, takes over of like camps and so on. And I think that's because like the filter is like really strong. That like the way in which, um, you know, the amount of investment in community that you have to do in order to kind of like become part of a, one of these tribes is very substantial and like there's a lot of checks and balances for like whether you fall into you know you actually embody the values of burning man and, and so on plus they also use exotic states of consciousness for like group annealing and in ways that seem pretty wholesome a lot of the times not always i'm not going to defend all of those practices every time but the point is that there are like strong filters and those filters matter without those filters you're screwed it just doesn't work so the picture that I want you to have in mind is as follows. The number of groups in the world of people who are sane, who are altruistic, who know about heaven and hell and actually want to make a difference and they're rational, they're just so few, really. It's like it's such a rare, rare combination. So picture it as a tiny, tiny, tiny grain of sand. 
And then picture the world's reserves of suffering as like this huge ball of fire. So I do not want anybody, you know, who's kind of in these like group, these like, you know, sphere of sanity and altruism to just, you know, be a martyr and sacrifice themselves to destroy this ball of fire because it's not going to work. All they're going to do is destroy that tiny speck of goodness that exists in the world. And like that's that's all, which is like a net negative, a huge net negative. So that's why, yes, yeah, sane in-group, out-group dynamics, what I would encourage instead is to find a way to reinvest in that group so that it's such that it can continue to grow and eventually actually have enough uh, capacity to deal with you know what's bad while also creating a pocket of goodness that grows and in a sense establishes um, its, its footing in reality. And I think that is the way forward. Now, unfortunately, you know, it's very tricky because if you're claiming you're, you know, trying to, you know, destroy, you know, intense suffering and so on, and people see you like, you know, reinvesting on the community or reinvesting on kind of this, uh, 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 reinforcing what's good, they, they, they can attack you as saying like, oh, you're pretending to be altruistic, but, you know, look what you're actually doing in practice. And uh, yeah, I mean, if somebody <laughs> attacks me in the future uh, about this, yeah, I'll just have to link them to this video <laughs> so they can see the actual rationale. That said, I mean, one thing that I'm personally not willing to, to compromise, so to speak, is in this explicit commitment to universal good and consciousness. You know, now, again, I'm very, very cautious of how that commitment is used for, you know, things such as like taking over an organization or something like that. So yeah, that, that's, that really sucks. We have to be paying a lot of attention to that and, and really be honest with ourselves and, and each other to prevent that from, from being a problem. Um, so yeah, in this vision, basically there is a harmonious coexistence between the aesthetic of focusing on the good and the aesthetic of destroying what's actually ultimately really, really bad. And that they, they don't conflict with that one another, but rather they're actually synergistic. So, yes, um, this is all very important. Um, to do that, there are basically two, two, two things I would mention, which is that first, um, because human motivation actually relies on things such as, yeah, basically status dynamics and uh, being in a good standing in, in community and so on, then like, yeah, we, we cannot rely on idealism. Like that's 100% not enough. So actually we also need a really good theory of how incentives modify action. Uh, things such as like actually being able to give credit for each other's work. Um, things such as like not stealing, you know, people's insights, uh, th things of that nature. Yeah, all of that has to be taken care of. And please, you know, if, if anybody feel you know, that I am being unfair <laughs> in general, uh, please let me know. I mean, in private, don't mount an assault that, I, you know, it's not going to help. But like, yeah, no, uh, honestly, I, I, I do want feedback and uh, very, very honest feedback because, yeah, it, it matters. Uh, but yeah, basically setting up the incentives such that like, you could say, even if I die in a freak accident or something like that, that, you know, the movement actually continues to flourish because the incentives are set up properly. You know, you can, you can take 
uh, yeah, the, the common human motivations and run them through these kind of incentive systems and that actually something really good comes out the other end. Uh, but yeah, the, the second point is to not think that these hyper-blissful, hyper-benevolent states of consciousness have no play, no, no role to play. Because I, I, I do think they actually are a very, very important component of the future of consciousness and civilization, not only because of their intrinsic value, but also because their power as a possible coordination technology. Now, this hasn't been fully explored. Uh, there's a couple articles um, I haven't finished <laughs> writing uh, that, you know, deal with this uh, and something, yeah, we talked a lot about. But uh, yeah, basically, we, we need those two, two conditions, I think, you know, speaking for myself. Um, and finally, the last thing I'll talk about today is kind of the kind of like the full vision of why you actually do not need to rely on illusions in order to be happy and in order to do good for the world. And that is kind of like, you could call it the hard version of the purple peel or like the strong purple peel or something like that. And I actually think it's possible. So uh, why? Because I think that even though nowadays the way in which we represent, you know, states of the world and we represent motivations has kind of like a diluted component of it. I mean, for the most part, to begin with, you know, most people intuitively feel that they're able to perceive the world around them directly. And, you know, when they interpret like DMT hallucinations or something like that, yeah, they kind of like take them at, at face value for, for that reason. And, uh, okay, so like in that sense, yeah, no, we are super full of illusions, you know, like, and, uh, and there's this fear that, you know, breaking down those illusions will just put you in a depressed state. And, uh, and maybe that's true for a certain percentage of people. But, you know, I, I think it's something that you can actually escape. Um, but there's also examples where you can actually be hyper sane, where you understand how the particular values of your world simulation uh, are actually simultaneously having a causal effect uh, having a, a corresponding uh, information processing role, as well as their intrinsic uh, subjective quality or, or qualia, how all of those come together. Uh, and I think that there are actually very refined, advanced states of consciousness where you can actually have a very, very, very close, if not perfect, correspondence between basically the, the form and the function of consciousness. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. I mean, so for, first of all, I think that you can understand phenomenal time. You can understand how the feeling of time is implemented uh, in psychedelics and in meditation. Um, and I recommend reading the pseudo time arrow or reading my, uh, sorry, or watching my video about like, what is time? Where I discuss, yeah, basically how time is implemented in our world simulation. And it's a very non-trivial thing, but once you understand it and you experience an exotic, experience of time, for example, time loops or moments of eternity, you can understand from a first-person point of view exactly how the various frames of your experience and the implicit causality between them is giving rise to the feeling of time. And I would call that understanding a kind of like super sanity. You know, it's, it's not only that you're Im Im embedded in a particular phenomenal time, it's also that you understand how it's implemented and that that's a, a, a direct understanding that also allows you to control it. So that's a, there's a, you know, a fascinating example. Second one would be valence. That like, we live under the illusion that actually we 
care about like you know external semantic content or like you know things that happen in the external world whereas ultimately we care about like you know the valence of our states of consciousness and i think that once you start understanding the symmetry to your valence um, and applying it to various exotic states of consciousness you actually also develop a kind of super sanity that like you understand that oh well okay yeah this dmt being is you know showering me with bliss qualia or something like that and oh my gosh, there is an annealing, annealing process that is going on where the valence of the state has a corresponding forced belief update. And in that sense, the fact that this is happening is making me update in the direction of the DMT entity being like an external, you know, mind independent uh, uh, being. And, uh, and you can know directly that that's actually an illusion. And you can in some sense like step back and understand that that's what is going on. And instead understand that, oh my gosh, like there is valence gradients embedded in the semantic content that are, have a corresponding, uh, basically, uh, symmet uh, symmetry gradients uh, that correspond to it. And in that sense, you can break down the illusion that what you care about is the semantic content without losing the valence at the same time. You can still enjoy the blissful, you know, shower of, you know, beautiful high dimensional uh, water of, of happiness that the DMT entity gives you without falling into the trap of believing that, you know, this is actually happening in some other dimension. And uh, yeah, so that's an example. And the final one, which is one of the most crazy ones, and I don't know how many people actually have this understanding in the world because you need a, again it's the, the venn diagram leaves like very few people uh you need to kind of like intersect a lot of communities and have understood the right things at the right time probably even in the right order but the the claim here is that you know this whole theory called zero ontology uh they have a video about it it's titled why is there something rather than nothing uh yeah basically it claims that the reason why that's the case is that there is no information at all, and that no information entails the quantum superposition of all possibilities, and that basically this corresponds, uh, or this manifests, for example, in how all of the quillia variety, all of quillia values of one variety, for example, phenomenal color, uh, you can experience a full kind of like color circle or rainbow of all possible colors simultaneously, and if you reproject it and see it from the right point of view they all basically collapse into nothingness or emptiness or kind of a, a kind of like vacuum of existence. And you can do this for every quillia variety where like in a sense, all the smells kind of cancel out into just pure nothingness and, and so on. And um, if you have one experience like this, where you have kind of a, a bit of a free willing hallucination quality to it, so you can actually kind of control this phenomenon of like, zoop this is the rainbow god experience of all colors and zoop this is like nothingness and you can alternate between them and simultaneously you have an understanding of zero ontology that gives you a direct experience of in a sense the structure of the experience simultaneously contains the semantic content of the theory and the experiential proof uh, that that semantic content is actually referring to the underlying principle for why there is something rather than nothing to begin with. And yeah, this is one of the crazy things that you actually need to, to experience this in order for you to believe me. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll just, you know, plant my flag and say, there is something here. You know, again, you, you shouldn't believe me. You should actually experience it for yourself um, and then, then report back. But like this, I basically think that 
it is possible to have this correspondence between simultaneously experiencing semantic content as well as having the experiential proof that this is what is going on. And, you know, I mentioned time, valence, like the why is there something rather than nothing question, but I expect this to basically also be possible in so many other domains from, for example, you know, the relativity uh, of Einstein or, for example, the superposition principle of quantum mechanics or even just something like uh, entanglement. Like, you can, I, I posit, you know, actually access specific states of consciousness where this information is, um, has an isomorphism with their semantic content and those states, yes, we can call them states of super sanity. And my claim is that it is possible to cultivate states of supersanity. It is possible to use them as the building blocks of your world simulation. And it is possible to be in such a world simulation while also, you know, being committed to the reduction of suffering throughout the living world and the creation of an experiential, sane, non-deluded paradise. Which is a lot, you know, but... That is the reason why I'm so optimistic, actually. <laughs> I think the materials are all there. It's all there. We just need to put them together and walk the talk and making it happen. Again, without sacrificing ourselves in the way to get there, without becoming martyrs, without becoming spiritual materialists and without like developing too much pride about what we're doing and so on actually you know like being mindful of all of that and i think it's possible so yeah hopefully that's inspiring and thank you for watching this has been enjoyable infinite bliss everybody and until next time